Hello, Rebecca Langley here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. Stick Together is produced in the studios of 3CR Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network and brought to you on your local community radio station thanks to the Community Broadcasting Foundation. This week we will be hearing from the women of the Geelong Women Unionist Network about their continued work on family violence. And Craig Garrett brings us a report from Brisbane about the partnership between the Ramsey Centre and the University of Queensland. But first, some union news. This week, the Sydney Morning Herald reported that unions have vowed to challenge a controversial bid to create a new permaflexi category of employment, slamming the proposal as a ruse aimed at further eroding job and wage security. It comes as opposition leader Bill Shorten ramps up Labor's jobs campaign ahead of a federal election at which income security and wage stagnation are set to be key voter concerns, particularly among the nation's more than 2 million casual workers. The New South Wales Business Chamber lodged its application to vary the Social Services Industry Award with the Fair Work Commission on Wednesday. Critics of the move, which employers want to extend across the hospitality and retail sectors, have honed in on the fact the application proposes a minimum one to three hours a week for workers hired under flexible ongoing employment. It beggars belief as to how they believe that will advance job and income security for low-paid workers, Health Services Union Secretary Lloyd Williams said. He said low-paid workers in the social services and disability sector were already struggling to make ends meet while working split shifts without compensation for travel time. I just see this as a ruse to reduce permanent hours and to create an environment where effectively part-time workers become casual workers with a lower casual rate, Mr Williams said. We will be opposing this application and seeking to improve job security and make the modern award fairer for workers, and we don't do that by reducing people's minimum hours. Permaflexi workers would get a 10% loading on top of what permanent, full or part-time employees are paid per hour in exchange for flexible rostering. The casual workers who are paid a loading of up to 25%, they would get sick leave and holiday pay accrued relative to the number of hours they work. Australian Council of Trade Union Secretary Sally McManus said workers needed an objective definition of casual work in the Fair Work Act as irregular, intermittent and unpredictable in line with court's interpretation. Mr Shorten has promised to review the definition of a casual and introduce an objective test if Labor wins the coming federal election. The HSU said it expected to work together with the Australian Services Union on a legal challenge to the permaflexi application. Mr Williams said many disability workers were not paid for the time they spent travelling between jobs and faced minimum shift times as short as 15 minutes. Ms McManus said employers who falsely classified workers as casual when they are not left people unable to plan for the future, as well as being unfairly denied paid sick leave and holidays. Australia has one of the highest rates of temporary and insecure work in the OECD. We are already an outlier in this area and we need to move towards better, more secure work. 
Opposition Industrial Relations Spokesman Brendan O'Connor said Labor's commitment to improve job security was our number one priority and that any proposal to do so would be seriously considered. The permaflexi application comes after the federal court last year ruled that Paul Skeen, a casual truck driver employed at a Rio Tinto mine through labour hire firm WorkPack, was entitled to annual leave and sick pay because he worked regular hours. Employers are concerned that decision may leave them exposed to back pay claims worth up to $8 billion across the economy. If long-term workers employed as casuals are found by a court to be permanent full-time or part-time employees. You're listening to Stick Together, workers' stories and union news. Broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. This week, I spoke with some of the women from the Geelong Women Unionist Network, also known as GWAN, about the important work they are doing on family violence. I'm Jackie Cribb and I am um, co-convener of GWAN along with Adele and I'm a nurse and I work in mental health. I'm on the uh, Trades Hall Council and the exec. I'm, I'm Adele Welsh. I'm a social worker in Geelong. I, as Jackie said, I'm the other co-convener of GWAN. I'm an ASU member and I'm also on Geelong Trades Hall Council. And I'm Zita. I'm a nurse. I work at Barwon Health Acute um, and also in education. Um, I'm an ANMS member and job rep and I'm on the Geelong Trades Hall Council at the moment. Yep. And Guan, obviously. <laughs> I know Guan has been uh, working on issues of family violence for a long time and uh, I was just wondering what, where that came from, like why is that the main issue that you've been working on? Well, it's been it's such, a, it's such a problem in our community that the Guan particularly, I was probably one of the um, oldest members of Guan, as Jackie here by the way, and one of the first things what we, that we did when I was with them originally when Chris Cousins, who's a local member now, she started really talking to us about the paid um, family violence leave. And so one was very involved with supporting Sharon Rollins at the time. So Sharon Rollins was an ASU delegate for the Surf Coast Council and we wanted to push the... Uh, use that as a test case to push the family violence leave through. And so we worked, and she was a GWAN member as well, and so we worked behind the scenes to try and get that uh, pushed through on a, at the council EBA. And that was really the first time in the world that that had ever happened. So that was a big deal for us. So and when, um, when was that, sorry? Oh, well, that was in 2010, I think. Wow. Yeah, so, and that really was a watershed moment for EBAs and family violence lead clauses. Um, and then from then, a lot of people took it up and it went worldwide. Mm. Um, and yeah, and that was, but it's seen as only the starting point. It's like, I don't, I don't want to call it a band-aid, but it's because there's a lot of problems, you know, caused with family violence, but it really helps women to... Um, move beyond like getting 
helping them in that crisis situation, but it's certainly not the panacea, but it was certainly a win for the union movement. Yeah. And from then on, we, we concentrated on family violence because it's so prevalent. You know, the statistics really show that one in three women have been affected by family violence. Yeah. Um, there's, there's three of us women here in the room today. So statistically, at least one of us will have been affected by family violence. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, here in Geelong, it's, um, family violence is a particularly significant problem. Yeah. Um, I think police... I think somewhere between 80 to 90% of... Um, the police here in Geelong, that what they're dealing with is family violence, either directly or indirectly. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, there's been some progress, uh, as you said, like over the years, um, trying to get employers to um, recognise the importance of family violence leave. Um, so could you tell us more about how, how you went about... Uh, yeah, creating that change? Well, I guess after the first clause, um, the, the wider union movement um, took it up. Um, and I think, you know, more and more EBAs um, do have around, do include around 20 days of paid family violence leave. Um, some, some companies allow for more um, and, and some businesses have unlimited paid family violence leave. Um, but unfortunately, the current government's only committed to five days of unpaid leave, which is now in the NES, the National Employment Standards, and it's available to all workers. And that's, you know, I guess that in itself is, is still pretty significant. But because financial abuse is such a common component of family violence, women need paid leave. Yeah, and, and a lot of, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that came out of the Royal Commission here in Victoria on family violence um, has sort of led into uh, employees in at the Victorian government, obviously, um, instigating a lot of the recommendations and part of the family violence leave and support from the employer have come from that Royal Commission. Okay. So I work at Barwon Health and there's been huge um, strides just recently in that they've employed two dedicated people in HR to deal with people undergoing family violence leave. And since they've been employed, which is possibly about 18 months now, they've had almost 400 people access that family violence leave. Wow. Which is a huge number, yeah. um, considering that, I mean, Barwon Health is a huge employer, but yeah. even so, it's a lot of people. Are they now rolling out education to managers, leaders, educators, uh, union delegates, in, in order to recognise and um, uh, refer and support people undergoing family violence? So, and, and uh, they envision that it's going to be rolled out to all staff members at some stage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and 10 days of paid family violence leave to go into the National Employment Standards is um, one of the things that the ACTU 
are pushing for um, as part of the Change the Rules campaign. Um, as, as things stand at the moment, women whose workplaces are covered by an EBA are more likely to have access to paid leave. But, you know, a, a lot of um, workplaces don't have an EBA, so, so their workers are more like they're relying on the award. Um, and often workers who are relying on the, the award are arguably more likely to be um, in lower paid, more insecure type work. So, they're, they're, you know, those women are really needing the paid leave because they're less likely to have savings to fall back on. Could you also tell us about some of the grassroots work that you've been doing with women in Geelong? One started around, I think, 2002. Okay. Um, it's been going for some time. Yeah. So as we've evolved, we've become more political and more punchy. <laughs> <laughs> and probably a bit more radical. Yeah, great. <laughs> yeah, and we, 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 we try to um, kind of really get to the heart of really serious union issues such as family violence and, and equal pay and, you know, put put all the issues on the table without kind of shrinking back. Um, and, you know, we, we work really hard on um, giving people skills and knowledge so that they can take them back to their workplaces and communities and really start to agitate for change. The, the other thing we do is we try and work with other groups as well. So we, um, we've got links with the Reclaim the Night Women, so we try and do joint actions together. An example of our radicalism is uh, in the past, the mayor at the time had just was quite a high-profile, wore an, a T-shirt of a naked lady, which was actually Madonna, but he wore it at a beer festival. And... Um, so we decided to have a protest outside the uh, the mayor, uh, the council chambers, to um, against the mayor, and that um, we got a lot of press out of that. And it was uh, the women all came down and the reclaim the night women, and there was a lot of different groups that came down to protest. But that was a spur of the moment just, uh, rally, um, but we tapped into the mood of the people, and we decided that you know that wasn't. He wasn't yeah. respecting women and we decided that. We did get a lot of trolls and a lot of... Um, uh, there was a lot of people that put out some misogyny yeah. type of... There was, there was a lot of um, backlash. Backlash against us, but yeah. we went ahead with it anyway and I think that was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. That was one of the highlights. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And, uh, yeah, can you tell us uh, if you have anything coming up that people could uh, come along to or might want to support? Sure. Uh, sure, yes. Um, we've just successfully had a International Women's Day breakfast um, on the Saturday just gone. We had over 50 people turn up to that, which was awesome. Yeah. Um, the next big thing coming up is in uh, July where we have our annual uh, fundraiser for a women and children's um, in crisis in our community. And this is um, in memorial to uh, one of our um, ANMF union representatives who sadly passed away four years ago now. And it's a trivia night, and that's coming up in early July. And then later on this year, we'll be holding our third uh, Working Women Get Organised conference. Yeah, I um, went to that 
uh, then, last year and really enjoyed um, hearing from so many different women and, yeah, talking to them as well. Yeah, and there's really nothing like it anywhere else. And uh, I think we've really punched above our weight for those two conferences and we just need to keep the momentum going and getting some really good speakers Mm. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important um, to say as well that we, we, we're completely unfunded. We, we don't have a paid organiser. We're all um, rank and file union women um, who mostly work full time and a lot of us have got significant caring responsibilities. So all the work that we do is all done in our um, spare time, in inverted commas. Yes. <laughs> You're listening to Stick Together, union news and social justice issues on your local community radio station. We just heard from the Geelong Women Unionist Network about their work on family violence. Now let's travel to Brisbane where Craig Garrett interviewed Professor Andrew Bonnell regarding the partnership between the Ramsey Centre and the University of Queensland. Since late 2018, UQ, the University of Queensland, has been in formal discussions with the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilisation about a proposed teaching partnership, similar to those partnerships you may have heard about at Wollongong University, the Australian National University and Sydney University. Today we speak with the National Tertiary Education Union's Andrew Bonnell. I'll just let Andrew introduce himself. I'm Andrew Bonnell. I'm uh, Associate Professor in History at uh, University of Queensland and I'm also the uh, Branch President of the National Tertiary Education Union at UQ. Throughout the discussion process, UQ academics have expressed concerns about the proposed partnership, with NTEU members voting to oppose it at a meeting earlier this year. On Monday, February 25, the UQ Senate voted to proceed with a formal memorandum of understanding with the Ramsey Centre, seemingly against the wishes of a number of UQ's academics, researchers, teachers and students. I started by asking Andrew what the Ramsey Centre is and why the NTEU is concerned. Well, there's a Ramsey Foundation which was set up from a legacy by the late health entrepreneur Paul Ramsey. And one of the things it does is support a thing called the Ramsey Centre, which is a project to promote something called Western Civilization in Australian universities. When they say Western Civilization, what exactly do they mean? Well, that's a good question. I mean, my academic area is actually European history, and so I've been spending, you know, like 40 years studying European history, and I'm not sure about the concept of Western civilization. This was a concept that sort of arose at the end of the First World War in the United States. They discovered that, you know, America and, the, and Europe had something in common, which was sort of capitalism, anti-communism, various other things. U.S. universities ran programs in Western civilization until about the 1960s, by which time they thought that the term was sort of not very useful anymore to describe the world as it was becoming decolonized. So universities like Chicago started to run uh, world civilization courses instead. A bit of a throwback by the yeah. sense. What exactly is the nature of the proposed relationship between UQ and the Ramsey Centre? Okay, well, the proposal is that, you know, the Ramsey Centre will actually uh, sponsor a whole uh, suite of courses, a program of about 12 courses. But the stipulation is that these be uh, great books courses. So you won't learn how to conduct research, but you'll just read great books in small groups, and that's going to improve students' minds. The Ramsey people are proposing to appoint somewhere between 8 and 11 staff, and it appears that they want to exercise an influence on those staff. 
The reason why there's so much controversy about the Ramsey Centre is that uh, this is going to be a very different kind of relationship where the Ramsey Board, which of course includes former Prime Ministers Tony Abbott and John Howard, seem to want to exercise an influence over what's taught and who's appointed. Is that part of the reason why the union is involved in this as well? Could you maybe walk me through some of those concerns? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the union's got concerns on a couple of levels. And one is that the NTU, as a higher education union, we're quite concerned about the professional conditions of work of university staff, not just the pay and leave and entitlements. For us to do our job properly as university staff, an absolute essential precondition of working in a university is that staff enjoy academic freedom, which is the freedom to conduct their teaching and research as they see fit, provided they're meeting relevant professional standards, of course. That may not sound like an industrial issue, but it's actually quite fundamental to the work that university staff do. So whenever the NTU negotiates an enterprise agreement, we fight quite hard at some places to make sure that it includes a strong academic freedom clause. And the other thing is related to that, the uh, institutional autonomy and independence of universities that they have to be free of direct political or business influence and for similar reasons that uh, it would be a great risk to our reputation and professional integrity if people could just come in and interfere in appointments from outside and influence how subjects are taught or how research is conducted. I mean, linked to that, there are other concerns about more industrial matters, for example. What the Ramsey people are suggesting is they'll have fixed-term funding and they'll review it every few years to make sure that people haven't gone off the rails and haven't got too subversive. Tony Abbott kind of blew the whistle on himself when he published an article in Quadrant in April last year saying that, well, you can't let universities control these sorts of things because they'll just drift to the left if you leave them alone, so we'll have to keep control of things. That's one of the things that torpedoed the negotiations at the Australian National University because the ANU was in conversation, was in negotiations with Ramsey and they were quite well developed. And then Tony Abbott publishes this saying, well, of course, we'll control the curriculum and staffing and we'll make sure it doesn't drift to the left. And that shocked a lot of people at the ANU. So it was a known goal from Tony Abbott in far, as far as getting the Ramsey proposal approved at ANU was concerned. What Ramsey's proposing is they'll supply funding for eight years with a review halfway through at four. So UQ might be appointing people on continuing contracts and then Ramsey could pull the plug and uh, UQ would then be left with positions that were possibly surplus to requirements and a very small number of students uh, being taught by these people. A partnership with the Ramsey Centre, how would that be different or look different from, say, something like the Sustainable Minerals Institute or the Queensland Brain Institute that are both at UQ? I should start by saying, you know, I'd I'd like to see more transparency about all our outside arrangements with outside donors. I mean, one sense in which it's different is that this is a teaching program that's been designed in conjunction with an outside body, whereas funded research is quite an old model where we have outside companies, you know, UQ basically almost tenders for certain kinds of research for business, and this is encouraged. And of course, governments have been encouraging it more and more that we should go out and work for business. But having a teaching program that has an outside partner, that's quite different. And there are sort of features of that which are quite peculiar. I mean, this will create a distinct cohort of students. They'll have scholarships, so there'll be a big incentive for these students to go into this program. And they'll have class sizes that'll be half the size of normal classes. They'll get a very privileged 
run at UQ compared with the average student who's carrying the consequences of over 20 years of cost cutting. It's going to create a sort of, you know, fairly privileged cohort. And my fear is that these students will largely be coming from fairly privileged backgrounds to start with. And this will just sort of compound the inequality. I think the other thing is the fact that there's quite an over political ideological motivation behind the private partner. It's not just about trying to find a way of making a business more productive by the university helping to discover better ways of doing things. There's a, a project which, and again, this is, you know, the rationale articulated by Tony Abbott in a published article. The idea is that, you know, universities have gone too far away from old-fashioned uh, education in Western cultural capital and they need to sort of get back to that model and away from a more critical humanities uh, scholarship that's been prevalent for the last 50-odd years. So it's really a des- an attempt to influence the way universities do their work, whereas outside, normally business partners are interested in outcomes rather than in political ideological influence. What action is the NTEU taking and what action would you like from UQ around this issue? Well, we've had uh, a members meeting which overwhelmingly voted to call on the university to withdraw the expression of interest for the reasons I've mentioned, you know, concerns about academic freedom and uh, autonomy and also concerns about the reputation of UQ because to be, you know, this university launched a reconciliation action plan uh, late last year and it has uh, you know policies that it wants to increase enrollment of aboriginal and torres strait islander staff and representation sorry, students and and have more aboriginal and torres strait islander staff so uq has all of these good intentions as far as equity and diversity are concerned But to be associated with a program that says it's about, you know, celebrating Western civilization, not just about Western civilization, but for it, as Tony Abbott puts it, uh, that's going to, uh, it's not going to make this a more welcoming space for uh, indigenous people. Uh, There's, it'll be, will be associated with a John Howard, uh, you know, legacy project of trying to sort of whitewash colonialism in effect. So there's a long-term reputational risk for UQ. So I guess we would like the UQ Senate to look very carefully at the governance issues and the issues of principle, but also to think about the reputational risk, that do we want to be linked with a kind of neoconservative project for uh, you know many years into the future? Thanks so much for speaking with us today, Andrew. You're welcome. Thank you, Craig. That was Andrew Bonnell. UQ Associate Professor and NTEU Branch President ending that report. For more information about the NTEU in general or the proposed UQ Ramsey Centre Partnership, go to www.nteu.org.au slash UQ. This is Stick Together. That's it for Stick Together this week. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 03-9419-8377 and leaving us a message. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. My name's Rebecca Langley catch you next time.